At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. to the Cryptid Keeper Podcast, the podcast for cryptids and their keepers. That's us. And if you're listening, it's you too. I'm Alex Flanagan. And I'm Addison Peacock. And friends, it's wild in here today. I don't know what you're talking about. Addison just woke up. I've been up for way too long. And we're meeting somewhere in the middle. It's going to be great. I did just wake up technically, but I've also been sort of like shifting between awake and asleep as my aching legs woke me from my slumber. Yeah, that's fair. I went hiking yesterday. Oh, I was going to come up with some, like, totally unrelated explanation for that and just kind of casually toss it in there. I was going to be like, yeah, Addison was leg wrestling wrestlies yesterday, so in case no. I was wondering. Just leg wrestling, though. Just leg wrestling, yeah. Because the rest of me's fine. <laughs> Uh, well, I have faith that in time, your legs will return to you as well. I think so. I hope so. I hope so, too. Uh, you want to talk about a sponsor? Um, yeah. Cool. We could do that. Let's do that. So this episode of the Cryptid Keeper podcast is again brought to you by Trans Artist of the Day on Twitter. Listen, folks, if you're tuning in here, we know you're people with good taste, which means you're probably looking for new art to enjoy because that's what tasteful people do. So why not go to Twitter and follow Charlie Arlette at C-H-A-R-L-I-E-A-R-L-E-T, Laura Platt at Laura Platt Music, that's P-L-A-T-T for the last name there, and Roy at <laughs> Roy Straws at R-O-Y-C-E-D-R-A-W. S. Those are the featured artists at the moment, and we are so proud to be talking about them on this little Sego we have for you. Sego! Yeah, that's a Gil and Gilbert thing that I've just sort of um, oh. incorporated blob-like into my vernacular. Well, if you want to find more amazing artists, you can follow Trans Artist of the Day on Twitter. You can find them at trans underscore artists. Both of those words spelled exactly how you'd expect them to be. Uh, again, that's <laughs> trans artist of the day at trans underscore artists. And remember, stay kind to yourself and others. Crypto Keeper says trans rights. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, that's not in the copy. You snuck that not. in. No, that was all me, baby. That's 100% organic material coming to you live. Perfect. Well, it's not live by the time you're hearing it, but. It's live for us right now. I think that all words are a part of living memory. Uh, I'm not ready for this at this point in the morning. <laughs> well, anyway, luckily for you, I'm the one who's the keeper of this week's cryptid. So the rest of this episode is in my hands. I am truly just a humble passenger. <laughs> yeah, so I was uh, coming into this week and it was a little bit intimidating because there were some awfully big shoes to fill after last week's episode. Oh, pish posh. Uh, thank you, by the way, to everybody who reached out and gave us mm. your thoughts on the Women in White episode. We got a lot of really, really beautiful feedback on that one. Uh, seemed like a lot of people had really 
powerful responses to it, much like we had some pretty powerful responses in the moment of recording it. So I'm glad that it resonated with people. Yes, thank you. And also sorry that your very beautiful sentiment now overlaps with me saying, oh, pish posh, because <laughs> I don't know how to take compliments. <laughs> but in all seriousness, thank you. Um, it means a lot. And the sort of solidarity that we were able to cultivate was very special to me. So thank you. Yeah, I think it's really nice because we go along and I, I mean, I'm I'm generally pretty proud of the balance that we strike on this show. I think that we find a really nice midpoint between shining light on things and laughing at them and maybe recontextualizing our own fears in a way that brings a little bit more brightness into the world. But sometimes there's something kind of beautiful and reverential about stopping and just respecting a terrifying thing for what it is. And I think that that's, like, equally beautiful. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, on that note, I kind of decided to run in the diametrically opposite direction this week. Sure, let's go. Because I was thinking I didn't really want to try to follow that. And so my uh, my train of thought was I'm going to take this, like, basically as far in the other direction as I can. Um, so this week we're doing the men in black. <laughs> oh, so, like, literally the opposite. So, like, literally. Um, now, opposite genders aren't really a thing. So, like, that joke is only as funny as the surface level allows it. But I'm not going to get into talking about that. I'm just going to say that, like, yeah, that's the joke, right? We did women in white, now I'm doing men in black yeah. because I think it's funny. That's like, But also because tonally it's pretty significantly like different. Like, people so. who, like this, I'm going to just wildly uh, generalize here, but people who think that men are the opposite of women are the same as people who think that dogs are the opposite of cats, which is to say they are fools. Um, <laughs> Truly. Anyway. Everything is a spectrum God, I wish dogs and uh, okay. cats existed on, like, a specific spectrum and there were, like, dog cats. Okay, anyway. Where do you think foxes come from? Oh, my God. I am a fool. I am the fool. I was the foxes? fool all along. Foxes are the envies of the cat-dog spectrum. I was I was the fool all along. Okay. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say on that. You can take that out of context and put it on a t-shirt. All right. So... <clears throat> What do you know about the Men in Black, first of all, going into this? Well, I, like many others, have seen the critically acclaimed feature film starring um, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. Which, honestly, thank God, it's an icon of our time. I also did own, for some reason, here we go, every single episode lately almost, talking about those, like, books that I used to have as a child that I don't know what they were called. Mm -hmm. I had a book about aliens as a child. It looked kind of like a magazine, but it was a hardcover book. Um, and it was called Aliens with an exclamation point. And it did have a massive section on the Men in Black. And I'll tell you, I have not read that book since I was 12, but I do remember a little (laughs) bit about it, which is to say, usually they're, they go along with alien stories after people have seen some alien stuff or been abducted. Uh, some strange guys show up at their house in black suits and tell them not to tell nobody what they saw. Yeah, pretty much. So I did know I would be stepping on your toes a little bit with this week, and I apologize. I know that usually the UFOlogy does fall into your camp. Um, side note, we have kind of like an unofficial um, dichotomous key that we use to sort of decide what cryptid falls into whose territory. We've no. never, like, verbalized it. We've never talked about it out loud, but we both just kind of have canonized it in our heads. Like, when I'm looking get the at dogs. Cr- I get the dogs. You get the kitties. Um, mm. If something is, like, specifically Gaelic, usually it's in my camp, whereas if something is, like, East Asian, it usually falls into your camp. Uh, mm-hmm. Ghost stories are usually yours. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so yeah, it's just, we have this like whole set of criteria and it's very funny because neither of us has ever verbalized it to the other, but I definitely feel like we're on the same page. Like man beasts are usually yours as well. Like, yeah, shifters are usually mine. Um, yeah. Whereas like specifically like women with terrifying powers are usually yours. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. interesting. <laughs> I want someone to do... Also, just, like, the more overtly spooky stuff tends to be in my career. Yeah, generally. Whereas stuff that's more, like, folkloric in terms of, like, oral history stuff is usually in mine. So, anyway, that's just an observation. Yeah. Fun stuff. But I feel comfortable taking the men in black because there is a significant amount of crossover with, uh, like, John Keel and the Mothman incident. So... I was just about to say, I did see a display on the Men in Black when we, you and I, Alex, <laughs> went to the Mothman we Museum. Did. We did! We were at the Mothman Museum together over the holidays, which was really, really nice. Um, there were also other people mm-hmm. there, I guess, it bears mentioning. <laughs> like... I know, I know, I know. It's true. Andrew was there, and um, our friend Grace, and also Tim yeah, like, <laughs> was there as well. Like, uh, and I feel specifically like I need to mention this, because I don't want to just say, like, Adam! and I were together at the Mothman Museum. Like, I did get engaged to a whole-ass other person while we were at the Mothman exhibit. Um, oh, no, I know. I just no, 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 no. I like... agree with you. Yes, it was a wonderful time, and I'm so happy we were both there. I am actually wearing my Mothman beanie as we speak, like I am most days. Um, I have mine on the table somewhere in front of me. I love every time I wear it when someone asks me where they can get one, <laughs> and I get to feel very, very cool and say, at the Mothman Museum. Exactly. One place in the world. The most important place, some might say. Okay, anyway. Truly. That was a good trip. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of overlap with the Mothman and the Men in Black. They have, yeah. um, in yeah, the Mothman yeah, there Museum, is. I don't know if they're going to come after me um, for revealing their secrets, but there is a section... Uh, dedicated to the men in black, featuring some very, very <laughs> uncanny mannequins dressed in black suits. Oh, they are terrifying. Um, one last little anecdote about the Mothman Museum, and then I'll get on to my actual episode. But um, Addison, I just wanted to take a brief moment to lovingly call you out for when we were in the Mothman Museum, and I went to sign the electronic guest book. <laughs> And I was taking longer than you liked because I was trying to think of some way to, like, phrase, like, come listen to the Crypto Keeper podcast or whatever. And Addison instead is just like, oh, here, no, you're, this is the right button. And then you just clicked it and just signed it with our names and nothing else. I didn't mean to. <laughs> to be fair, I think I did write Mothman is real. Yeah, you were like, I was, like, standing there, like, trying to figure out what to write. And I was like, I don't know what to put. And you were like, oh, here. And you wrote Mothman is real and then sign. <laughs> okay, look, Alex, you could have signed signed it again with a different email. I could have. Um, it was fantastic. I loved it. Thank you. All right. Fair. So anyway, me, the men in black. <laughs> they're more than just um, an also upcoming feature film starring uh, Chris Hemsworth, yes, and my wife, Tessa Thompson. They're both my wives. Yeah. Fair. I, understandable. I love it. Um, yeah, I'm very excited for that. But in any case... Yeah, the Men in Black, most people know through the movies, the major motion pictures, plural, because there are three of them right now. Oh my now, god, there is, a, there is a Men in Black too, isn't there? <laughs> there is, yeah. Um, some people choose actively to forget about it, but it does have Rosario Dawson in it, so it's not a total I love wash. Her. And Patrick Warburton. Wait, I'm sorry. Alex, there are already three of them? Yeah. There's a third? 
There's a third one. There's a third one where there's like some time travel nonsense that happens. So you get like Tommy Lee Jones as Agent K, but there's also a younger Agent K who's played by, I think, Josh Brolin. I'm not really positive. There's actually also, oh no, that's the one that's not out yet. Okay, never mind. I was about to say there's a fourth one, but that's the one that's not out yet. That's the one that's upcoming, yeah. So there are currently three extant MIB films. Um, and another coming out that's probably going to blow them all out of the water. Emma Thompson's in the new one? There's so many phenomenal aspects of okay. this new movie. Like, I don't care how bad it is. It's a great movie. Oh, yeah, of course. my official stance on it. But anyway, there's the picture. There are the major motion pictures, which came about as an adaptation of the comic books, which were written in response to the actual, like, Men in Black craze. Mm-hmm. So there were layers here. And there are layers, like as far down as you want to go on this thing. I think that it's very easy to make a case for, like, the uh, the veiled admission here, where, where, like, these things are being greenlit and published to control the information that we have about them, and to fictionalize it in a way that makes it seem like, oh, those totally aren't real, right? Because they wouldn't be talking so openly about it if they were. Plot twist. Nice. Anyway. Some people think that they're a government entity. Some people think that they are themselves literally aliens. Yes, that's what I've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are compelling issues of evidence for either, maybe both. But no matter what you believe, they do, yes, tend to show up after uh, UFO sightings. And not just UFO sightings, but occasionally other paranormal activity. They almost always threaten individuals who have information about these events in order to keep it under wraps. Sometimes it's indicated that they have a hand in actually removing those memories or blocking them. With that, uh, with the flashy guy. The neuralizer, yeah. Other times, they literally just kill people to cover up the oh, events in question. That's less fun. The real men in black are pretty dark, yeah. Ah, <laughs> dark. Eh. In the movies, they always show up in pairs. They're always assigned, quote-unquote, like, in pairs of two. Uh, in That's so you can make it a buddy cop movie. <laughs> it's so you can make it a buddy cop movie. But actually, they tend to show up in stories and sightings in groups of three. Oh. I mean, that does make sense because I think, as as I've heard before, three is company. <laughs> I, I feel truly like I am having an out-of-body experience right now. Okay, please. Oh, no. Are you Okay. <laughs> I'm just very sleepy. It's just, I just want you to know that, like, the filter, whatever little filter I had left over just the weird thoughts that crossed my mind is gone. Well, don't worry. As soon as we release this episode, we and everyone who listens to it will probably be coerced into forgetting about it. So. Oh, haha. So it doesn't matter what we say. I am floating freely in a primordial podcast suit. (laughs) It's it's a lot. Is it grapefruit flavored? Um, Probably, yes. I'm going to take another sip of my grapefruit juice. Nice. I'll go ahead and Mm. read to you from the cryptids wiki. Mmm, citric acid. See what our good friends there have to say. Oh yeah, gimme. The Men in Black, sometimes abbreviated to the acronym MIB, which was coined by John Keel. If you don't know who John Keel was, he was the author of the Mothman Prophecies. And a prominent ufologist for most of his life. Are strangers dressed in black suits who threaten UFO witnesses into silence. They also harass witnesses to other paranormal events to keep them quiet about what they have seen. The MIB usually travel in a group of three and drive black cars. They show strange or otherworldly behaviors, such as trying to drink jello or not knowing what a ballpoint pen is. And they I'm seem- sorry. <laughs> <laughs> such as trying to drink jello or not knowing what a ballpoint pen is. I don't know how to make that clearer. 
I didn't know we were gonna cross into just full blown slapstick. It is wild. Yeah, I like this that. one is like tonally all over the map. And they seem to have advanced technology. One woman even claimed that the men in black took part of her memory. No. Yeah. The MIB were seen after Mothman sightings and Dover Demon sightings. They told witnesses of both of these creatures not to talk about their experiences. The strange men are seen by most people as a sort of damage control, and it is sometimes said that they may be government agents or even aliens themselves, as I said. That would make sense if they try to drink jello or don't know what a ballpoint pen is, or maybe they're just like, one, maybe they're time travelers from before jello or ballpoint pens were a thing. Or from after they became extinct. Oh, Alex. Mm-hmm. I also enjoy the choice of the word extinct as if we <laughs> yeah. hunted the noble jello into <laughs> extinction. But you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I stand by what I said. You were saying... Now, when you talk about Men in Black, there does come a lot of, like, clunky and slightly problematic language, um, because, one, they're specifically called the Men in Black, so people try to, like, address the elephant in the room by being like, there are also women in black, or female MIBs, and it's like, why would you call someone a female Men in Black? That doesn't make any sense. That's truly, like, when people call them female firemen. Mm-hmm. But they are rarely seen. They're probably all working desk jobs. I was just going to say, probably because of institutionalized sexism. (laughs) (laughs) Women can be terrifying, mysterious agents of... I just wanted to say agents of an unknown agency. That's nothing. That's redundant. But women can be mysterious, terrifying figures who show up on your doorstep to intimidate you into silence, too. I think I speak for many listeners of our podcast when I say that if a woman in a suit asked me to do anything, I would say okay. (laughs) They'd be more effective, perhaps, even. (laughs) If a man in a suit tries to tell me what to do, my first instinct is not to listen. (laughs) Yeah, right. Whereas if Kate Blanchett in a suit shows up and asks me to do something, my first instinct is to say, how high? (laughs) Oh, man. All right, let's talk about sort of the inciting incident behind a lot of this. Okay, which is? (laughs) So, men in black figure prominently in UFO folklore, but the sort of uh, main event of the men in black lore is an episode from 1947 recounted by a man named Harold Dahl. And how is that spelled? Like Roald Dahl or like a doll like you put on a shelf? Yeah, nope, like Roald Dahl. D-A-H-L. Yep. Thanks. Uh, You're welcome. And um, actually, there's a great article from history.com, as in, yes, the History Channel, the one that loves aliens. Nice. From July 20th, 2018, talking about the much earlier incident, obviously, titled The UFO Sightings That Launched Men in Black Mythology. Oh, very good. So let's talk about this particular one. June 27th, 1947. It's quite possible that all of this started with a man, a boy, and a dog on a boat. Now, I do just want to give a heads up because I would want to know a bad thing happens to the dog in this story. Oh, no. The dog does die, and I'm very, very sorry. I wish it weren't true. As the story goes, Harold Dahl was on a conservation mission near the eastern shore of Washington's Maury Island. That's M-A-U-R-Y, like Maury, yeah. Gathering logs when he saw six donut-shaped obstacles hovering about a half a mile above his boat. 
Before long, one of them fell nearly 1,500 feet, followed by raining metallic debris, some of which hit Dahl's son, Charles, on the arm, as well as the family dog who didn't survive the ordeal. Very sad. Mm. Dahl was able to take some pictures of the aircraft with his camera, which he later showed to his supervisor, Fred Chrisman. A skeptical Chrisman went back to the scene to look for himself and saw a strange aircraft with his own eyes. The following morning, Dahl was visited by a man in a black suit. They end up at a local diner, how serendipitous, where the man was able to recount in extraordinary detail what Dahl had just experienced. What I have said is proof to you that I know a great deal more about this experience of yours than you will want to believe, the man said, according to author Gray Barker's 1956 book, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. Oh, yes. Which is like such a great title for a book. Anyway, Dahl was told not to speak of the incident and told that if he did, bad things would happen. Oh, shoot. Now, it is worth noting that while the supposed events of Maury Island have continued to fuel conspiracy theories to this day, a U.S. government investigation did deem it as a hoax after Dahl and Chrisman admitted as much. However, in his later years, Dahl recanted that admission, saying that he was under pressure to admit that. Mm-hmm. So it goes back and forth. Uh, but anyway, yes, before you go along saying, like, that was a hoax, like, okay, yes, there was a U.S. investigation, so, like, that's trustworthy as heck, sure, saying that the whole thing was a hoax, um, based on the admission of the initial observers, who then later said that they were pressured into admitting that, which, like, if we're talking about a group of people that may in fact have been U.S. agents to begin with, then, like, of course an U.S. investigation is going to say that it was a hoax. Come on, people. Mm -hmm. Let's tear down the curtain. Yes. I'm ready. Let's go. (laughs) Well, anyway, that sort of initial sighting kicked off a little bit of a phenomenon. People latched onto this idea, and they did come up in a few other sightings, which then sort of launched this cultural craze, which then launched the comic book, which incidentally... Um, If you watch, like, the credits of the Men in Black movies, it'll say, like, based on the Marvel comic. It wasn't initially a Marvel comic. It was a three-issue, well, they were two separate three-issue black and white series in 1990 and then 1991 by Aircell Comics, which was a division of Malibu Comics. Um, And then Malibu Comics was acquired by Marvel by the time that Men in Black, the movie, hit theaters. Uh. So... It wasn't initially a Marvel comic, it was a subsidiary of a subsidiary that then when, like, this property was acquired, Marvel was like, hey, we want that, and then it became a Marvel movie. Mm, Okay. So, is Men in Black in the MCU? I don't know. I mean, if it is, then Tessa Thompson occupies two positions in the MCU, and I'm very interested to explore what that means into the- And they're both aliens. Yeah, and, like, into the Spider-Verse style, I want to, like, dig into that. (laughs) <laughs> just picture me over here with like a Pepe Sylvia board and I'm like drawing connections between like Asgardians are really the men in black <laughs> because I mean all the evidence is right there it's not just Tessa Thompson Chris Hemsworth is standing right next oh my to her God. in both pictures and as we've just established Marvel owns men in black yeah God, this goes all the way to the top. Bring it together, people. I can't make all these connections for you. All I can do is present the By the top, I mean Tessa Thompson. All right, anyway. (laughs) This is a family-friendly podcast. I'm (laughs) sorry. The children won't get it. All right. Oh, man. There are some significant differences between not only the movies and the Men in Black comics, but also between the comics and the initial lore of the experiences. Um... 
the comics are probably closer to the quote-unquote real deal than the movies are. The movies sort of, again, take it a step further away from reality. Um, right. First things first, in the comics, um, Agent K, who Tommy Lee Jones then plays in the movies, is like... Mm-hmm kind of a total monster. <laughs> He's a completely sadistic oh. character who really only sees his partner as an expendable individual and pretty much thinks of all human life as disposable. Oh, yikes. Yeah. So that character definitely got an update. Um, That's like if you uh, read the books, The Princess Diaries, after seeing the movie, it's very shocking to discover that the grandma in those books is and not like Julie Andrews. She is <laughs> horrible and has tattooed eyebrows. Yikes. That's very much. Anyway. Um, I don't think Tommy Lee Jones has tattooed eyebrows, but the characters are pretty distinctly different. They did make him a lot more sympathetic in the movies. Um, In -hmm. addition, uh, Will Smith's character, Agent J, is one, not very much like a Will Smith character at all. But two, in the comic books, rather than being presented a very reasonable opportunity to join this institution and change his life dramatically... Um, he's basically a DEA agent who is sort of caught in the crossfire in a drug sting gone horribly wrong. And then when he comes to, um, the MIB agent in question basically says, you can either join the MIB or we'll erase your memory of this drug bust that went wrong. And, um, then your entire career is going to be over because it's going to look like you fumbled this one super bad. Yeah, yikes. Yeah, coercion into a government institution is not awesome. They clearly changed that a lot for the movie as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe to make it less of a horror film? <laughs> uh, yeah, if you did just like a straight-to-screen adaptation of the Men in Black comics, you would end up with a movie that was not fun for anyone. Fair. But it is interesting, and I thought that those changes were, like, worth noting. They're fascinating to talk about. Yeah. So differences between the comics and the real life, though... Um, In the comics, the Men in Black are, uh, again, a government institution that is tasked with basically shutting down and silencing witnesses of paranormal events. But it is made pretty clear that they themselves are not aliens and don't necessarily have, like, unusual powers. Um, Additionally, they don't really have as much, like, advanced or alien technology as they do in either the movies or some of the sightings. They pretty much just have, like, regular guns, which they use to kill both aliens and people. It's not great. And also, in the comic books, uh, they travel in teams of two, like in the movies, but not like in real life, where they travel in groups of three. Right. So, that having been said, let's talk about some sightings of Men in Black. Please, yes. Which are all super fun and weird. I was going to ask how common there or how many sightings you can find since often they go along with like memory removal. Yeah, there are actually. Side note though. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. What were you going to say? If I was going to say a woman claimed that they removed her memories, and I'm like, if they removed your memories, why do you remember it? Um, I don't know. Maybe piecing it back together from context around you or maybe like residual memory whispers. Totally. Or maybe you just like, you remember like they did a bad job. And so you remember seeing like one of these dudes and then you remember like a gap of three days that you have no recognition of. Like, I don't know. Maybe that's sort of my assumption. No, that makes sense. I didn't mean to sound all checkmate atheists about (laughs) it. I just was like, that just threw me off a bit. Oh, man. So yeah, yeah, tell me about some sightings. Yeah, this article is actually from Thought Catalog, which... Sure, why not? (laughs) Why not? Why not Thought Catalog, right? But 
Uh, it's titled Nine Freaky Encounters with the Real Men in Black That'll Seriously Give You the Creeps. You won't believe these encounters with the men in black. <laughs> these two men in strange suits showed up on her doorstep. What happened next, you won't remember. <laughs> All right, tell me about them. All right. <clears throat> Number one. The real MIB agent who made a coin disappear as a scare tactic. So, like, a street music, a street musician, <laughs> a street magician. I'm so tired. Okay. That's what I thought, too, when I read the headline. But actually, it's a very bad clickbait headline because the real story is way more interesting. Oh, yeah. Let's go. Dr. Herbert Hopkins was working as a consultant on a UFO case in Maine. Which, like, what a sweet gig. You're a UFO mm-hmm. consultant? One evening, he received a phone call from someone purporting to be an activist in the UFO community, which is, again, a great set of words, asking him if he could visit Hopkins to discuss the case. Only minutes later, the man arrived. Um? The man was wearing a black suit and black tie and had very unusual facial appearances, with no hair or eyebrows and an extremely pale figure. Hopkins' dog began barking erratically the minute the man entered the home which is not the most unusual for dogs. But after the bizarre visitor was finished questioning him about the UFO case, the visit got even stranger. Here's how it went according to the website The Night Sky. The man in black informed Hopkins that there were two coins in Hopkins' pocket, which was correct, and asked him to remove one. Hopkins complied and held the coin, a shiny new penny, in the palm of his hand. The man in black told Hopkins to watch the coin closely, After a few moments, the coin took on a quote-unquote silvery appearance and then appeared to be going out of focus. It then began to fade and eventually disappeared altogether. The man in black informed Hopkins that the coin would never be seen on this plane again. Oh. He then inquired as to whether Hopkins was familiar with alleged UFO abductee Barney Hill. Hopkins replied that he had heard of Hill, but was on I'm familiar with Barney Hill. Okay, sorry. Yeah, but was under the impression that he had died in the not-too-distant past. The man in black informed Hopkins that was correct. Barney didn't have a heart, said the man in black, just like you no longer have a coin. Oh my god. Yeah, right? Dark. Have you ever seen, uh, this is not the same, but have you ever seen No Country for Old Men? I actually haven't. (laughs) There's a very menacing scene, this reminds me of, there's a very menacing scene where Javier Bardem's character goes into a, uh, goes into a a gas station or, like, a convenience store, basically, and Javier Bardem's character is, is, is like a, um, is like a, a a criminal, like, he's like a murderer, like, that's his whole... like a criminal murderer. Okay, but, like, he's, like, he's a bad, bad man, um, and he, it's not the same at all, but this is all I can think of in terms of comparison, he takes and apologize apologies to anyone who's already seen this movie and is just listening to me describe an iconic film scene <laughs> but he goes into this convenience store and the guy says something that that makes him fr- angry so he very calmly takes out a coin and he and he says like what's the most you ever lost on a coin toss and he says call it and he flips it and the guy calls it correctly and so it, it ends up being fine and he just kind of and, and he ends up just basically leaving, but knowing the the audience watching that scene knows that he's flipping the coin to decide if to kill this man or not. Yikes. And it's really, it's very intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I did not do it justice by just repeating <laughs> it very, like, blandly, because Javier Bardem is in there like, what's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? And, like, his Spanish accent and, like, very intense, like, 
burrowing gaze into this poor uh-huh. man. But anyway, that's what that just reminded me of. And I did not expect the Men in Black to remind me of No Country for Old Men today. Yeah, it's wild. Um, when's that crossover happening? Disney owns everything now, right? So like, just, 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 where's Disney's claim <laughs> where's, to No Country for Old Men? Does Disney own No Country for Old Men? It feels like they should. <laughs> Anyway, um, I, yeah, after let's keep going. that is terrifying. <laughs> this is this story is also terrifying. So the men in black then gently suggested that Hopkins destroy any material he had related to the UFO case. I he, do not believe them <laughs> that it was gently. Yeah, me either. He did that. He burned everything. Um, but he had repeated phone troubles after, and the phone company said that his line had been tampered with, possibly <gasps> to tap it. He never saw the man again. Oh, my God. Or at least doesn't remember seeing the man again. Oh, my God. That's me editorializing. That's not in the story. Okay, but still. But still. Oh my God. Yeah, right? <clears throat> Let's talk about number two. The doctor threatened by the men in black and told to stop his UFO research. All right, let's go. Dr. Albert K. Bender was a well-written and extremely intelligent researcher who founded the International Flying Saucer Bureau. In fact, I'm pretty sure we've talked about Albert Bender on this show before. Apologies, Dr. Albert Bender. Mm -hmm. If there's one thing I learned in college, it's that calling people without their title is going to um, ruin your grade. I was just going to say, he didn't go to, he didn't do all that school just for you to call him Albert. He didn't go to Correspondence UFO College, just, (laughs) I'm kidding. Just so you could call him Albert. (laughs) All right. I'm kidding. Respect to Dr. Albert K. Bender. He was well written. In 1955, his research was about to yield serious fruit as he prepared to unveil a paper that would prove the U.S. government had, to one degree or another, covered up proof of UFOs. He planned to publish his findings in the Space Review, that was, until he was visited by the Men in Black. Bender claims that three men, dressed in all black, obviously, visited him at his home and warned him against pursuing the topic of UFOs any further. The men left Bender scared for his life, and he immediately shut down all of his research and the Flying Saucer Bureau. Whoa. Many people who knew him claim that Bender was a changed man after this encounter. His later works were rambly, almost unreadable, and he seemed to live his life in constant anxiety and terror. He purported to still receive mysterious phone calls with nobody on the other end until the end of his life in 2002. Oh my god. Mm Mm-hmm. That's so scary. (laughs) I know, right? Number three is actually the Maury Island incident, which we already Mm -hmm. talked about. Let's see, number four is the Solway Firth Spaceman photo invites a government right. visit. Yeah. Why not? Let's go. I don't know if you've seen this photo. I don't know if you've seen the Solway Firth photo before. Um, it is a photo by Jim Templeton, who was shocked to discover a figure in the background of a photo of his daughter. The figure was not in the camera's view when he took the photo, and nobody had any idea where oh, it came from. Oh, I think I've from. seen this picture. You probably have. The film was verified as authentic by Kodak, and Templeton's story went public. Not long after, he was visited by two quote-unquote government agents who referred to themselves as number 9 and number 10. They demanded to see the site of the photo and questioned Templeton about the event. When Templeton told them he didn't see the figure personally, the men became angry and stormed out of the field, never to be seen again. Hmm. Templeton was later contacted by two employees at a missile launch pad in Australia who claimed that they saw two figures that resembled the man in his daughter's photo on launch pad security footage. Oh, Apparently, my God. 
Yeah, apparently the missiles at that site in Australia had been produced only 20 miles away from the field where Templeton took the photo. Ah! Mm-hmm. Oh my god! <laughs> the title for this next one gets me, um, because it's not really supposed to be funny, but it is, kind of just inherently. Uh-huh. Number five is just titled, Guns No Good Against Aliens. <laughs> okay yeah that's pretty good (laughs) guns no good against aliens i mean yeah guns you know no good against aliens you know what they say no good against aliens my mama always told me you know what they say about guns guns are no good against aliens (laughs) no good against aliens anyway paul miller was returning home after a hunting trip when they saw a luminous disc in the sky sure the disc Yeah, the disc landed in an empty field, and two humanoids emerged from the craft. Miller fired his gun at them and believed to have injured one when he fled down a rural road in his car. Now, I don't advocate, like, a hit-and-run, even if they are aliens. Yeah. But I understand why you would behave in that manner. Right. Thankfully, gun's no good against aliens. So it was fun for the aliens. Yeah. However, in that moment, he realized he had lost time. It was almost three hours later than when he first encountered the craft. Ah. He shrugged it off and went back to his Air Force job the next day. However, upon entering work, he was immediately confronted by three men in black suits. They told him that they had his file. (gasps) Despite having told nobody about the event, the men said that they knew all about it and mentioned that the encounter would be best forgotten. Paul says... They seemed to know everything about me, where I worked, my name, everything else. They also asked questions about his experiences as if they already knew the answers. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty wild stuff. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. (gasps) There are a few more, and I do love all of them. They're extremely good. But um, I would just like to know your thoughts on, like, what do you think these guys are? Do you think the government, like, the government agency theory is the go-to, or do you think that they are aliens trying to keep other aliens under wraps? Do you want to know what I think, or do you want to know what I think would be more fun? <laughs> well, I'd like to know what you think, and then we'll read a few more and see if we can maybe get to a more fun answer. I think that after the amount of, like, government conspiracies and theories that have turned out to just be kind of true, and just mm-hmm. the U.S. government doing all kinds of shady stuff over the years that I wouldn't be terribly surprised to find out that this was some sort of government thing, even if it's not actually yeah. related to aliens, but related to things like weapons research or, like, like missile launches. Like, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if this was basically just an intimidation tactic to keep people from spreading anything that might lead people toward information that they don't want made public. Um, oh, yeah. However, I do think it is a lot more fun to imagine... That there are aliens, like, in human suits (laughs) that really want to make sure you don't tell anybody about the aliens you saw. Particularly, I like to imagine them as, like, several small aliens sitting on each other's shoulders inside of a suit with, like, a Halloween mask of a man's face over the head part. And they're all, like, just sort of... good. And that's why the faces just look kind of strange. Yeah, because it's like a latex mask. I do like that. It is quite actually to reference 
Men in Black the film, it is probably quite similar and probably, I say, as if this is anywhere close to approaching uh, fact or (laughs) anything provable, it is probably quite similar to the scene in which the man, uh, the man's body is uh, put on like a suit by a uh, cockroach alien and he's... Oh yeah, Vincent D'Onofrio. Sugar water. Sugar by the way, I did not realize that was Vincent D'Onofrio. It's so Vincent D'Onofrio. I've seen that. I love That's it. That's incredible in one yeah. of his best performances, perhaps. Honestly, it's really good. Because he's doing it's, some incredible movement work. It's extremely but, unsettling. He's very good. I really just love the kind of absurdity of that. Because these are, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, kind of inherently frightening stories. Mm-hmm. Because... And and it's much more fr- I'm much more afraid to be completely honest with you of the U.S. government than I am of um, aliens. Oh yeah, so, same. Because I have much more reason to be. <laughs> also fair. I don't know a ton about what aliens have been up to, but I I've studied American history. I know some stuff. Um, and so I think it's just it's it's a lot it's a lot more fun and also less frightening for me to imagine that it's aliens just sort of haphazardly trying to intimidate people into silence. By the way, the coin thing is still sticking with me. That is dark. It is wild. Yeah, it's completely wild. And I have read about that case. We'll probably we should do an episode on it at some point. But yeah, that's oh a, yeah, we a, totally should. A really kind of famous uh, alien abduction. Um. Betty and Barney Hill. That's um, if you want to read about it, you can. It's very interesting, but I think I think they're aliens. Long story short, aliens, <laughs> aliens, aliens. Um, well, just before we jump back into the last few, I want to take a sidebar to discuss one other possible theory. Okay, let's go. Which is um, we talked about uh, we talked about Bender and Bender believed that they were government agents. And we talked a little bit about John Keel, but what we didn't talk about is that John Keel himself had encounters with the Men in Black, and that's probably why you saw it in the Mothman Museum, because mm-hmm. John Keel, when he was doing his research and writing the Mothman prophecies, is, I believe, when he says that he had encounters with the Men in Black, um, mm-hmm. who basically were like, what are you writing about? Like, well, you have to let us see, like, what you're writing, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. And pressuring him about the things that he could and couldn't say. Anyway... Keel referred to them as, quote-unquote, demonic supernaturals. And the demonic thing is, like, specifically interesting. Because um, a f- different folklorist named Peter Reutovich compared Men in Black accounts to tales of people encountering the devil and speculated that they could be considered a kind of psychological drama. For example, in the 1850 novel The Scarlet Letter, the black man is used as a euphemism for Satan, who is said to haunt the forest. And, like... That's not great, right? That language does not age well at all. But if you're referring not to an individual with dark skin and you are instead referring to, like, a a person clothed in black who appears, like, associated with the specific color black. That's actually just like last week. You have some of the uh, lady in white referred to as the white lady, and they don't mean that this is a lady with a pale complexion. Right. They mean in a white dress. (laughs) Yeah. So that's not awesome. Um, And it's also, you know... I would be remiss not to acknowledge that a lot of demonic imagery and ways that people have chosen to portray, like, evil-aligned figures throughout the course of history and fantasy and sci-fi novelization is, like, 100% racist and super bad. Mm -hmm. And that's no good. Like, don't do that. Stop doing that. So I'm not going to pretend that this isn't racist, because it probably is. Hey, um, medieval Europe, can you cut that ish out, too? Can you maybe stop doing that, like, forever? Because you're still doing it. 
You're still doing it. Stop making all those terrible paintings. But a lot of folklore throughout the ages, people have referred to encounters with demons or with Satan or similarly nefarious entities as, like, being clothed in black or being shrouded. And maybe this is just a modernization of that encounter. Mm-hmm. Perhaps. Is, is the general idea there. Um, one last quote which I love is that ufologist Jerome Clark says that men in black represent experiences that, and this is the quote I love because the phrasing is just so awkward, experiences that don't seem to have occurred in the world of consensus reality. Consensus reality. Consensus reality. Like, it's the most politically phrased thing I've ever heard, where he's trying very hard not to say they didn't happen, but he's also, like, not willing to commit to the idea that they did. So, they don't seem to have occurred in the world of consensus reality. Mm. So, like, okay. I don't know. Yeah. But the idea that they might be a psychological sort of response to, like, you had an encounter you couldn't explain, and the collective consciousness sort of has this projection to offer you is also fascinating. Totally. Anyway, let's do a couple more sightings really, really quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gimme, gimme. Okay. <clears throat> a radio personality harassed by, quote-unquote, journalists for talking about UFOs. Danny Gordon was a radio personality, perhaps not so different from ourselves, who became interested in a flurry of Wythe County UFO sightings. Multiple people across the county claimed to have seen bizarre objects in the sky, and Gordon decided to investigate. He became obsessed with getting photos of the objects, including one time where an entire school bus of students saw the UFOs flying over a shopping mall as Gordon took photos. Eventually, Gordon snapped a few photos at extremely close range that allegedly verified they were not of this world. However, strange things began happening to Gordon. He received a phone call from a man who claimed to be ex-military and warned him that his research could cost him everything and urged him to stop for his family's sake. Oh, shoot. Gordon was also interviewed by two men in black suits who claimed to work for a magazine publication. Not long after the interview, Gordon realized all his photos were missing. Mm. He contacted the magazine for information, and they claimed to have never heard of him, much less commissioned an article about him. Not long after, Gordon suffered a heart attack and his doctor warned him that all the research and stress was jeopardizing his health. Gordon gave up the story and was never bothered again. Now, the specific detail of a heart attack terrifies me in, like, conjunction with the earlier story. Yeah, he... No, he ha didn't have a heart. I don't love it. It's pretty bad. Just like you no longer have a coin. It's so freaky! So scary. Mm-hmm. Um, here's one about UFO researchers being harassed at home. Mm -hmm. UFO researcher Jack Robinson and his wife Mary began to experience extremely strange events as they pursued more alien and UFO-related research. They would come home to find their house rummaged and looked through and their UFO files disturbed. Mary also began to notice a strange man in a black suit and hat staring up at their apartment from the doorway. Mary mentioned this activity to a friend who drove over and saw what she was talking about for himself. The friend, Tim Green Beckley, snapped a photo, which we have, of the man, which is believed to be one of the most ironclad pieces of proof of the men in black. And that photo does exist. You can find it. Nice. Now, granted, it does just look like a dude in a suit, like, kind of casing this apartment, but it's interesting. Yeah. 
And then there are two more. Um, give me, give me, give me. And we're going to blow through them, but this this last one is one that I really, really, really want to end on specifically. So if we have anything else to say, we need to get to it before I get to number nine. This is number eight. Professor harassed in library for reading UFO book. Rude. Professor Peter Reutchevich, so the one who had the quote about consensus reality, claims that mm-hmm. he was reading a UFO book in the library when a strange pale man wearing all black sat down next to him. The man began talking to the professor and asked him about his opinion on flying saucers. The professor replied that he wasn't super interested, and the man became very agitated. (laughs) Hey, Alex, was this you? (laughs) Oh, man, I wish. No, this one actually, to me, is, like, more proof in the favor of them being aliens. Because I love the Mm -hmm. idea that, like, an alien's job is, like, to come down here and shut down humans talking about aliens. But also they get super offended when you, like, aren't interested in them, right? It's, like, a very sort of pull the thing of like really angry dudes on the internet who like flirt with you but then if you say you're not interested they're like whatever you're (laughs) ugly anyway we don't even care if you it's just like a very sitcom thing to me where it's like our protagonist is this like really awkward bad at his job alien man in black who's supposed to be like shutting down uh any human discussion of ufos because he's like oh reading a book about ufos huh what do you uh, what do you think about ufos and the guy's like, oh, I don't know. I'm, I just, this, like, this is one at the top of the stack because I'm really not interested in UFOs. And then our protagonist is like, well, what do you mean you're not interested in UFOs? <laughs> like, wait, what don't you like about them? <laughs> why wouldn't you be, why wouldn't you be interested why, in them? Why, what, I, you don't think they're cool? Somebody worked really hard on that ship. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, TM, 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 copyright, copyright, nobody steal, don't touch this, it's ours now. Okay, thanks. Yeah, Gonna write right. this pilot. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, um, one last story, and this story is just so insane. The tone of your voice has got me very excited for this. Okay, let's go. (laughs) I'm going to read the headline alone to you, and you're going to think it can't get any weirder, and then it absolutely will. Actor Dan Aykroyd's show shut down by MIB? What? Okay. (laughs) Dan Aykroyd has come forward with his story about how he was taping a show about the paranormal. Which, like, one, please? <clears throat> he stepped out to take a phone call from Britney Spears, who was asking um. him who was asking him to appear on Saturday Night Live with her when he noticed a black Ford parked across the street. A tall man stepped out of the Ford and stared him down. Ackroyd turned away for a moment and then turned back to find that the man and the car had completely vanished. After he finished his phone call, he returned to the studio to learn that his show had been cancelled and he was ordered to stop filming immediately. Some doubt his claim, but Aykroyd says he knew what he saw, and maintains that there was some kind of connection between these MIB and the end of his paranormal show. Oh my god. Now I ask you, where is the spinoff where Dan Aykroyd and Britney Spears go hunt down the men in black? We deserve it. Yes. Anyway, that's all I've got for you today. Thank you. It's so good. I can tell by the tone of your voice that um, you are impressed and at a loss for words. I am very impressed and at a loss for words. (laughs) Um, Anyway, that's The Men in Black. If you look them up, there are dozens of videos on YouTube claiming to have, like, video evidence of The Men in Black. There are recent accounts of The Men in Black, even, like, fairly publicized ones. I found one article uh, that was reporting Men in Black sightings along highways in this uh, county in Iowa, and that was published, like, in 2017, 
So hell yeah, yeah. Like they're still moving and shaking out there. They're doing their thing. Um, and again, there's a ton of stuff that I didn't even begin to touch on just because I kind of wanted this one to be more like sightings focused. There are accounts of them having like glowing eyes and hovering off the ground as they move. There are stories about them having like these weird abilities like referenced in the, um, the sighting with the coin and everything. Like there are some very, very strange stories out there. It's hard to tell which ones all sort of share common ground and fall under the same umbrella. But, um, I think that Dan Aykroyd knows. Yeah. And I want to know what he told Britney Spears. I would. I didn't know they were friends. <laughs> I don't know. The fact that Britney Spears has like the kind of relationship with Dan Aykroyd where she could just cold call him and say, hey, I want you to be on SNL with me. <laughs> like. What's happening? Like that story buried the lead and buried it hard. I feel like I've stepped into an alternate reality. What is happening right now? Well, maybe you're just no longer in consensus reality. What does it mean, Alex? <laughs> Consensus reality sounds like that sounds like Scientology speak. I don't. It does, doesn't it? Or just Pretty weird or cult speak of some kind in general. It's just it's too, it's so much. But anyway, yeah. I, this is I like I like I like the Men in Black. I like knowing about them. I don't like them. I've never met them. I hope I never do. <laughs> but I'm sorry. Just by recording this episode, I've put you at a much higher likelihood to encounter them than you probably were before. But also, like, if someone comes up to you in a library and asks you about UFOs, be kind. (laughs) Be kind. (laughs) You never know whose feelings you're hurting. Yeah, that's the big takeaway from this one, honestly. I think so. That's what I've taken away from it. If you if you learn only one thing from this episode, if you remember only one thing after the neuralizer flash, let it be this. Be kind. I think it's a pretty good lesson to leave us with today. I think it's very good. Do you have any announcements for our listeners? Um, no, I don't think I so. do. Oh, all right. <laughs> so this was like when you ask someone how they are so that you can tell them how you are. Uh, so how was your vacation, Addison? Um, are you doing anything fighting for spring break? Mine was great. Yeah, so that's what that was. All right, what are your announcements? Well, mine was terrible. Anyway, my announcements, um, first of all, we are up to 93% of our Patreon goal. <gasps> 93%! <laughs> oh, It's pretty awesome. So a friendly reminder that once we get to 100% of that goal, we will officially be scheduling and like putting in motion our first ever Cryptid Keeper live show. And I have it on really good authority that when that happens, and I say not if, but when, when that happens, um, we're going to have a spectacular opening act for you. Yeah, we are. Don't know if I can give you more details than that just yet, but once the ink is dry, you'll hear about it. Mm-hmm. There is so much for you to access on our Patreon. Yeah, there is. You can pledge at various tiers to get access to the entire backlog of A Horror Borealis, which is our actual play campaign that is now airing publicly on the One Shot Network. Um, it's going week by week over there, and the re-released episodes are, you know, coming out at a at a lively clip, but nowhere near the extent of audio that we have for you on the Patreon. So if you want to get it all in your ears at once, or if you're a classic Netflix binge listener type, then you can get as many of those as you want by going to our Patreon and pledging at any level. There is other stuff on there too. There are bonus episodes from this show, as well as some like fun side projects Addison and I have done. Yeah. You can get discounts on our merch store. You can get... Um, access to a poll where you tell us directly what cryptids you want us to do. 
we have a um, poll up for our $10 of the month listeners. And anyone who is $10 a month or more can directly tell us like, hey, I want to see an episode on this scripted and we will do it in the year 2019. So that's the most immediate way to get your faves represented. There's other stuff too. You can get thank yous by name on the episode. You could get access to a monthly newsletter that Addison and I put together with recommendations of media that we're really enjoying. Yeah. Um, so that's all some super fun stuff. It is. Love that. On the subject of merch, our merch store is reopen. Shipping is a little bit slow at the moment because it's just me doing it and I do have a day job so I can only ship on Saturday mornings. There's like a window of three hours every week I can get packages out. It's rough, but I'm doing it. Um, Side note, if you ordered something, it will have shipped by the time this episode airs. So we will be totally caught up on everything by tomorrow morning. Again, indeed. Um, Yeah, but you can go to our Etsy store, which is uh, if you go to Etsy and search The Cryptid Shopper, we have some fantastic stickers. We have postcards. We have giant posters that are beautifully rendered. They're so good. um, Diner mugs. Yeah, we have um, some of our t-shirts left. And, you know, once we sell out of anything, we'll probably be commissioning new merchandise. So if you want to help get even more fancy Cryptid Keeper accoutrement into your household. Oh, yes. um, Buy what we've got. (laughs) Indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, And I think that's all I have to say, with the exception of a big thank you, as always, to the people who make our episodes possible, whether that is our donors and backers or our Twitter followers or just the people who go around and listen to us every week or tell their friends about us. Like, whatever you're doing, you're a part of the mission, you're a part of the vision, you're a part of the team. We love having you. Heck yeah. Um, Also, big thank you to our team members. Thank you to our in-house composer, Andrew Giada does our theme music. Hey. Thank you to our audio wizard Val Patron who edits our voices together every single week. Into some semblance of reason. <laughs> Into some kind of something. Takes all of our nonsense and makes it a podcast. So, and thank you to our pod home, the Lunar Light Network. Thank you. Uh, I, I was I thought you'd jump in with some stuff and then it didn't happen and I got nervous. <laughs> Sorry. Follow Trans Artists of the Day on Twitter. Yes, and... Uh, Go buy art from Roy. Yeah. Can I do the thing? You can do the thing. Nice. As always, we hope we can keep you around and stay safe out there. Studio. Pretty, witty, and gay.